Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Second Kings chapter three. Well, beginning in Second Kings chapter two, the beginning of the end of the prophet Elijah's reign as the highest and chief prophet among the many prophets of Israel and Judah was commenced. Now, Eliyahu, Elijah's, Elijah, Elisha's former master, who had been mysteriously removed from earth by God in a storm wind, had overseen the era when the spirit of prophecy in Israel seems to have been at its peak. But upon his disappearance, that same spirit began a rapid decline. Now even so, Elisha held nearly as much power and authority and closeness to Jehovah as did his former master. In fact, we found out in chapter 2 that the Lord had granted Elisha a double portion of the prophetic gifting and it was validated by means of Elisha being able to observe God's fiery horses and chariots. That was uh, part of Elijah's going up into the heavens and this was something that was in the spirit and no one else possessed the ability to see it. And so these next several chapters will chronicle a sampling of the many miracles. It's going to record a selection of the many oracles that God worked through his anointed prophet Elisha. But chapter 3, the subject of today's lesson, is a departure from this theme. Elisha is only briefly mentioned and the focus is instead on the rebellion of the nation of Moab against Israel and the war that is set off with Moab on one side and a coalition force of Israel, Judah and Edom on the other side. So this would be a, a good time to recall that at this point in history when Israel is spoken of it is only referring to the northern tribal territories, generally situated north of Jerusalem. And it consisted of, the ten, of ten of the twelve tribes of, of Jacob. And I'd like to point out that just as it was with Eliyahu, Elisha's mission field was nearly exclusively Israel, not Judah. The reason for this is simple. Judah was generally staying faithful to Jehovah, while Israel had fallen into nearly complete apostasy and idolatry, except for a handful of pockets of, of, of faithful Jehovah worshippers. Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was in full operation. The priesthood still ministered to God, the temple, and the people of Judah. The sacrifices continued unabated. The kings of Judah remained, to varying degrees, loyal to Jehovah and to his Torah, even if it was far less than pure worship, and obedience to God's laws was usually tempered by the political expediencies of the day. So what we find is that the Lord has established a pattern. 
that the more God's people are oppressed and the more the spirit of evil, what today we might call the spirit of the Antichrist, the more it comes upon the earth, God responds in mercy with a counterweight of some sort. But the counterweight is always just for a time, then it's removed. In the era of the Shoftim, the judges, during a time when Israel was only a loose confederation of Hebrew tribes and clans and was not yet a sovereign nation, the Lord would send deliverers called judges to deal with the several foreign oppressors that were making life difficult on the twelve tribes. But that was accomplished on a tribe-by-tribe, case-by-case basis. In the era of the kings, after the United Kingdom of Israel dissolved into two rival kingdoms upon Solomon's death, the northern kingdom immediately made a strong turn towards idolatry and even oppression of its own people. This, then, is when we start hearing of Elijah and of the many thriving prophet guilds consisting of thousands of godly prophets who banded together and they lived in prophet colonies in several of the larger cities of the north. These prophet guilds of God were of themselves a divinely ordained counterweight to the thousands of prophets of the government-sanctioned prophet guilds of Baal that Queen Jezebel introduced into Israel. This was the means that Yehovah used to keep the truth of his word alive in the northern kingdom at a time when political and social pressures demanded that worship of God be abandoned or at least considered to be no better than the worship of other gods which were to be recognized as legitimate gods and they were even to be respected. However, as we're going to see in the book of 2 Kings, God doesn't have limitless patience with his people. And his taking of Elijah marked that moment when God's patience had reached its maximum. And from here on, in a slow descent, God would begin to remove that spirit of prophecy that had been the vehicle of keeping his word alive among those who still wanted it because the number of people who still wanted it was diminishing. At some breaking point where the number of faithful become too few and the apostasy of Israel's kings and the general population became too extreme and entrenched into society, God used but a few men as prophets. And their purpose was mainly to pronounce a warning of the coming doom over the kingdom of Israel as God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. So, let's read Second Kings chapter 3 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 402. 402. 
Yehoram, the son of Achav, began his reign over Israel in Shomron during the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he ruled for 12 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, but he was not as bad as his father and mother because he got rid of Baal's standing stone which, had fought, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, with which he had led Israel into sin. He never turned away from them. Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he used to send the king of Israel the wool of 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams as tribute. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Yehoram left Shomron, Samaria, and mustered all Israel. He also went and sent this word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you join me in attacking Moab? He answered, I will join you in the attack. I'm with you all the way. Think of my people and horses as yours. Which route should we take? He added. The road through the desert of Edom, answered Jehoram. So the king of Israel set out along with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after a roundabout journey of seven days, there was no water for either the army or the animals following them. This is terrible, exclaimed the, the king of Israel. Has Adonai called these three kings together only to hand them over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat said, Isn't there a prophet of Adonai here through whom we can consult Adonai? And one of the servants of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, the one who used to pour water on Eliyahu's hands. Jehoshaphat said, The word of Adonai is with him. So the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom went down to consult him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do you and I have in common? Go, consult your father's prophets, your mother's prophets. But the king of Israel answered him, No, because Adonai has called these three kings together to hand them over to Moab. And Elisha said, As Adonai Zavaot lives before whom I stand, if I didn't respect the fact that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, is here, I wouldn't even look in your direction or take notice of you. Now, bring me a musician. And as the musician played, the hand of Adonai fell on Elisha. And he said, Adonai says to dig until this valley is full of trenches. For here is what Adonai says. You won't see wind and you won't see rain. Nevertheless, the valley will be filled with water and you will drink. You, your cattle, your other animals. That's an easy thing to do from Adonai's perspective. He will also hand over Moab to you. You will conquer every fortified city and every choice town. You will chop down every good tree, stop up every well, ruin every good field with stones. And the next morning, around the time for making the offering, water came from the direction of Edom and the countryside was filled with water. And when all Moab heard that the kings had come up to attack them, every man was summoned from the youngest capable of bearing arms to the older ones and they stationed on the border. They arose early in the morning when the sun was shining on the water. Moab, when they saw the water in the distance looking as red as blood, said, That's blood! The kings must have quarreled and their soldiers killed each other. Moab, to the plunder! And when they arrived at the camp of Israel, 
Israel launched an attack so that Moab fled before them. Before them, But they advanced on Moab and struck it. They made ruins of the cities. Each man threw his stone on every good field covering it. They stopped up all the wells. They chopped down all the good trees. And finally, all that remained was Ki Haraset behind its stone wall with the slingers surrounding and attacking it. And when the king of Moab saw that the fighting was too much for him, he took with him 700 men armed with swords and tried to break through to the king of Edom, but they couldn't do it. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to have succeeded him as king and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And following this, such great anger came upon Israel that they left him and went back to their own land. This chapter opens by driving a stake into the ground to give us a sense of the timing of Moab's rebellion against Israel. And as with both books of the kings, the timing, the dating, is given in relation to which king was ruling. But because there were separate independent monarchies operating, one in Judah, the other one in Israel, then we are also given the timing in the form of synchronizing the reigns of a king of Israel in relation to a king of Judah. Now that's all kind of confusing for us, but more than sufficient detail for an ancient people who fully understood how this system worked and what it meant to convey. And wouldn't you just know it, the timing given to us in verse 1 doesn't seem to match with the time given in an earlier chapter about these same kings. Here's the situation. Yehoram, son of King Akav and Queen Jezebel, and therefore the brother of King Akazjah, they had the same parents, he was now king over Israel, the northern tribes. Okay? And this was because Akazjah, his brother, had died of injuries from accidentally falling out of a second story window. The problem with this timing is this. We're told that Yehoram became king of Israel in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's reign as king of Judah. But back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, we're told that Yehoram became king of Israel in the second year of the reign of King Jehoshaphat's son, who was also named, just to confuse things worse, Yehoram. So, which is correct? Did Yehoram of Israel become king during Jehoshaphat's reign, or was it two years after Jehoshaphat's reign when his son was now ruling? Surprisingly, there's actually no discrepancy here. Okay? Many months ago, we discussed how it was among his Middle Eastern kings, including Israel and Judah, to have a kingship that was called a co-regency. In other words, two kings would be sharing the same throne simultaneously. This generally happened, not always, when the current king became too elderly or, or ill or incapacitated. So he named his son a successor and he was immediately installed. Sometimes the current king was so determined that a specific son become his successor, he didn't want to take any chances of any kind, of a political intrigue or some hanky-panky upon his death. So he ensconced that favored son 
as the next king during his lifetime. Make sure it would happen. That son was immediately coronated, but the father didn't step down. Rather, we had now kind of a senior king, the father, and a junior king, the son, ruling cooperatively. This arrangement is what scholars call a co-regency. That's what explains away this seeming discrepancy. So in fact, Jehoshaphat and his son, Yehoram, were ruling Judah together. And the editor chose in chapter 3 to use King Jehoshaphat's name as the mark in time, while he chose in chapter 1 to, keep, to use Jehoshaphat's son's name, Yehoram, as a mark in time. Again, for us, kind of confusing. But for an ancient people who were completely familiar with such arrangements, they, they knew instantly what all this meant. In fact, what I just told you about Jehoshaphat and his son reigning together is outright stated in 2 Kings chapter 8. Verse 16. Now I'm going to use a, uh, the, uh, a King James Version because the complete Jewish Bible translation of this passage is a very poor one and frankly it's just inaccurate. All right. It says, And in the fifth year of Joram, or Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, began to reign. So it explains. Two kings ruling at the same time. Now, verse 2 goes on to explain that Yehoram, king of Israel, now remember this is a different Yehoram than the one who's ruling in a co-regency with his father Jehoshaphat and Judah. Well, he was a very evil king. But in God's eyes, he wasn't quite as bad as his parents, Ahab and Jezebel. For one thing, we're told, Yehoram took it upon himself to remove a pillar a religious monument that had been erected in honor of Baal. This was Yehoram's mother's patron god. On the other hand, he retained the golden calf gods of King Jeroboam. And verse 3 seems to indicate that he honored the cult of the golden calves and he didn't deviate from whatever it was that had been set up before his reign began. The reason for doing this would have been the same as for the originator of those graven images. It was all about money and politics. Recall, it worried Jeroboam that his people would journey to the temple in Jerusalem there to be ministered by a Levite priesthood. This all happened in Judah. And the people who served at the temple were loyal to Judah. Not only that, enormous amounts of livestock and produce and other wealth would have been taken from the economy of Israel to deposit at the temple in Judah. Their sacrifices, their first fruit offerings, lots of different kinds of wealth, vow and peace offerings, all of this. So Jeroboam set up his own graven images in a temple. There was two of them established, so it would be convenient for his people. And he set up an alternate priesthood. He set up his own prophets. Then he barred his people from journeying to Jerusalem under the rationale there was no further reason for them to make this arduous trip. Why would the Lord see removing 
this pillar to Baal as preferable to retaining the golden calf idols. Probably because Baal was another god, a rival god. But the golden calves were actually graven images of Jehovah. So to worship Baal was to abandon worship of Jehovah, but to worship the golden calf images was to break the second commandment of Jehovah. But at least Jehovah was still seen as Israel's God. I mean, I, I wish I knew exactly where the Lord drew these lines, all right, for the better and the worse. But perhaps there's a larger principle here that's a little more easily defined. It is that despite the generally accepted modern Christian view that all sins are the same in God's eyes, that intentionally giving somebody the wrong change at a lunch counter is no different than armed robbery of a bank because they're both sins. That in fact there are greater and lesser sins. And it's not as easily clear-cut as, say, shoplifting as compared to cold-blooded murder. Here in this passage, the sin of creating a graven image of Jehovah is explicitly said to be seen by the Lord as evil, but not quite as bad as worshiping a different God altogether. And as we move along in the book of Kings, we're going to see that Yehoram made some modest efforts to tamp down Baal worship, but he didn't succeed. And no wonder, his mother Jezebel was still alive. Obviously, she still held much sway and power over Israel. She wasn't about to have the god of her family, remember she was from Sidon, who was Baal, be removed, at least not on her watch. Well, now the timing is set. So as we get to the meat of chapter 3, the rebellion of King Mesha of Moab against Israel is spoken of. And we're told that Mesha was a herdsman. This simply means that Moab's economy was centered on the raising of flocks and herds, and indeed the famous tableland of Moab was near perfect for this kind of endeavor. And since the time of King David, Moab had been under Israel's control as a vassal state. The tribute, the taxes that Moab was required to pay the monarchy of Israel as the terms of this vassal relationship was a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand sheep annually. One can imagine that was quite a burden on the Moabite society and it must have rankled every one of Moab's kings for the last 150 years. But another thing is to notice that Moab was not under Judah's control, only Israel's. So why would King Jehoram of Israel seek to convince King Jehoshaphat of Judah and his co-regent son that they ought to join him in putting down that rebellion? Why would Judah want to get involved? Quite simple. A few years earlier, Moab had attacked Judah. And in 2 Chronicles 20, we read about Moab coming against Judah, causing great damage and many casualties, even though ultimately losing. And Jehoshaphat wanted retribution. 
In 2 Chronicles 20, starting in verse 1, we read, Sometime later, the people of Moab and the people of Ammon with other Ammonim came up to fight Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was told a huge army from beyond the Dead Sea, from Aram, is on its way to fight you. Right now they're in Hatzazon Tamar, that's also called Ein Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was frightened, so he determined to seek Adonai. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from Adonai. And they came from all the cities of Judah to seek Adonai. So, once Jehoshaphat was on board, the next step was the plan of attack. And it was decided that they would attack Moab, not from the north. That was kind of the easier route. Went through fertile and the fertile and valuable part of Moab, but rather they should attack from the south. But this was mostly desert wilderness. And since battles were waged in the seasons where there wasn't rain and, and cold weather, and since the rainy season was late fall, winter, and the beginning of spring, then this military expedition would have occurred in the late spring or early summer. It was going to be dry, but it was also going to be hot. The availability of water was going to be crucial. No doubt Mesha would never have expected an attack from the south for all these reasons and more. And further, by going through Edom, through Edom, down around the bottom of the Dead Sea, through Edom, to get to Moab, with the proper application of political pressure and a promise of a substantial portion of the war booty, the king of Edom would have good reason to ally with Israel and Judah. Not only would he be disposed to allow Israel and Judah's soldiers to pass through his nation, but also he would contribute to the war effort. Well, Edom was in this weakening vassal relationship with Judah at this time, and not far from regaining its independence. In fact, depending on which writer of the Bible you're reading, the term for the head of the Edomite government at this time is either king or commissioner. For a long while, Judah had put their own man in charge of Edom. But now it seems probable that, the, that a more typical king-vassal relationship was in operation with a man from a proper Edomite aristocratic family now running the country. And so he was called a king. But of course this king was still beholden to the king of Judah to some degree or another. Well the route they took was a good strategic choice. But it went around the southern end of the Dead Sea and then it turned northeast all through miles of desert terrain. Verse 4 says that the army mar marched for seven days but unexpectedly they found no water. In those days, very little water could be transported with them. It was simply too heavy and unwieldy to carry, so they went to known places along the way where water was usually present. But in this case, all those sources were dry. And now they were in great danger. So in verse 10, Yehoram, king of Israel, is said to have claimed, Alas! In the sense of, like we have in our complete Jewish Bibles, Oh, this is terrible! 
and he wonders if Yehovah has brought all three armies here simply to be weakened from thirst and then made ripe for the taking by Moab's forces. Now, interestingly, King Jehoshaphat of Judah had a different mindset because he had a different heart. It's not that he wasn't concerned and worried, but rather than essentially blame God for their predicament, which is what the king of Israel had done, he immediately decided what was needed was to consult Jehovah for help and for a solution. And in earlier times, before the United Kingdom of Israel split, Levite priests would have been the medium through which God was consulted. But over the last several decades, prophets had taken a much larger role, almost exclusively so in the northern kingdom. And so Jehoshaphat asks Jehoram, isn't there a prophet of God nearby? Well, one of the king's courts says that there is a prophet of Jehovah that can be reached. And his name is Elisha, the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, Elijah, um, uh, Elisha was a student uh, servant of his former master, Elijah, uh, Elijah. Now, this is easily imagined because that, that of all the profitable, uh, possible prophets that could have been consulted, the last one on earth that the king of Israel wanted to be involved with was Elisha. He would have been well taught by Eliel to have no regard for Israel's kings. In fact, Elijah had been considered as a troublemaker, if not an outright enemy of the kings of Ephraim Israel. Of course, Jehoshaphat knew of Elisha and of his reputation for being a steadfast prophet for Jehovah. And so he decided he'd be that perfect consultant. It's interesting to me that these three kings did not summon Elisha to be brought to them. It is said they went to him. No doubt they remembered what happened to those two groups of 50 soldiers that had been sent to arrest Elijah and they were burned up like toast. Wherever Elisha was, it had been it had to be nearby, considering all the dire straits they were in without water. They wouldn't have had to go too far for too long to find him. And when they approached Elisha, I just wonder, can we picture the king of Israel taking one look at this prophet, knowing this wasn't going to go well for him? And Elisha didn't disappoint. He sneers at the king of Israel. And he wonders why he would be interested in hearing from a true prophet when he has all of his mother's yes-men prophets to consult. The insulted king replied that essentially, since this was Jehovah's army, that as much as he hated to do it, it was a prophet of Jehovah that would need to be consulted. Elisha responds that he will consult Jehovah, but only for King Jehoshaphat's sake. Then Elisha orders a musician to be brought to him. There's been a lot of interesting opinions on why he'd call for a musician at this moment. But I don't think there's any real mystery to this. 
The music was not meant as part of the ritual to consult God. Rather it is that Elisha, Elisha, was upset. He needed to be soothed so that he could be be in the proper spirit to communicate with the Lord. They didn't have aspirin. They didn't have tranquilizers in those days. You know, I think it's similar to the way music is used today in the church. It is at least partly meant to create a mood of reverence and to help us set aside other cares and concerns that might be dominating our thoughts. It can be a real and needed aid to calm us and to relax us. King David was famous for regularly using music for just that purpose. And it had its desired effect as Elisha was now able to open up his own spirit to hear God's. So it's now that we see one of the main reasons that this matter of the rebellion of King Mesha of Moab was inserted here by the editor of the book of Kings. It is to bear witness to yet another miracle of God brought about through his prophet Elisha. The Lord is going to bring water to the soldiers of the coalition army to save them. Now, what may sound like some strange ritual of digging trenches and then an otherwise impossible miracle of filling them up with water from nowhere is what's being contemplated here, but that's not the case. Just as God most often uses the natural things of his creation to serve his purposes, he does the same thing here. See, just as in Egypt, when Yehovah used frogs and lice and boils and all manner of things that occurs rationally and it occurs cyclically, he also orders them to happen upon his control and command, sometimes with a ferocity that transcends anything normal. Thus, the plan is that these water reservoirs will be dug, and then God will cause them to be filled. How does that happen when it seems that rainwater isn't going to be the source because verse 17 says neither wind nor rain is going to be seen? Actually, it's going to be because of a flash flood. The place that they are to dig these water-catching trenches is in Hebrew a wadi, a dry riverbed. And at the end of the dry riverbed, usually miles away, are mountains. And what happens is that the rains, the rain, it rains on these barren mountains that are made out of just rock in Israel. They gather together, the runoff gathers together into a rushing torrent at the bottom of the mountain and it quickly flows down through these wadis. And I can tell you that this is a dangerous and a common occurrence in Israel that unaware hikers walking in a wadi are suddenly, without warning and under a cloudless sky, caught up and swept away by a fast-moving flash flood. It's because the source of the water is far enough away that the thunderstorm that has drenched the mountain source of the water is not even visible to those hikers. 
And then in verse 18, the Lord says through Elisha that while this miracle of life-saving water is going to seem at first like such an awesome thing, in fact, it's trivial. Because God's real intent is for Israel's troops to not only survive, but to go on and defeat Moab. And the Lord says He will hand Moab over to Israel. This isn't merely a glib saying, it's not, a, it's not customary Bible speak. And although Moab is an arch enemy of Israel, a seemingly merciless attack of retribution is not the aim. This is an important piece of information. Because when the Lord orders a war against an enemy of Israel and says He is going to deliver the victory, this becomes a holy war. And now that we understand that this is a holy war, the next couple of verses are more understandable. Because essentially, the coalition army is instructed not just to defeat Moab, but to do it via a scorched earth campaign. They're to destroy everything they encounter along the way. They're to level every Moabite city, cut down every good tree. That means fruit trees. Fill up all the water wells with rocks and dirt. Clutter up all the fields with rocks so they become unusable. Why? Because it's holy war. And the rules of engagement of holy war are that since Jehovah is the warrior leader who defeats the enemy, all the spoils of war belong to him. It all becomes his holy property. And since we're talking about physical booty being turned over to a god who's a spirit, the standard way this is accomplished is by destroying it. Burning up what can be burned up. And thus taking any possible use of the spoils out of the hands of men. This is according to the law of Harem, the law of the ban. Verse 20 says... The appearance of water happened exactly as Elisha foretold it, and that it occurred in the morning at the time of the Mincha prayers. This is not meant to say that they were doing sacrificing in prayer out in the desert wilderness. It just means, it's just a way um, to describe the time of day using a common reference that the Hebrews would have understood. But while all this was happening, some Moabite scouts and lookouts stationed around the borders of Moab spotted this large enemy force. They informed Mesha. And then Moab's army was ordered to rush to meet the Israelite army at the southern border. But at first light, as the Moabites were dispersed unseen in the hills above where the Israelite army was encamped, some soldiers noticed what looked like huge pools of blood off in the distance next to the Israelite tents. The reddish soil that had become all mixed up with the turbulent waters had taken on a blood-red tinge. And the Moabite soldiers and commanders assumed it was actually blood. 
and that the coalition army had turned on itself and that a slaughter had ensued. And delighted, they rushed down the hills to pounce on the wounded and diminished soldiers only to find out it had all been an optical illusion. It's a valuable principle that all believers need to learn. God can use anything for both curse and blessing. For God's people, the sudden appearance of that water was a life-saving blessing. But for God's enemies, the Moabites, that same water proved to be a fatal curse. The Israelite soldiers fought them. And the surprised army of Moab fled with the Israelites in hot pursuit. Along the way, the troops did as Jehovah instructed and destroyed everything in sight. And finally, they pushed what was left of Mesha's retreating army into a walled city and they surrounded it. Mesha knew he couldn't hold out long in the siege. And so he took 700 men and he tried to break out. And the plan was to break out in the direction of the Edomite troops and to kill the Edomite king. Then they'd have a route of escape. The reason they chose Edom was that they figured Israel wouldn't be so anxious to rescue these foreigner Edomites at the cost of Israelite blood. Likely, he also figured the Edomite army was the least likely to fight hard to win what was really an Israelite war. And Mesha failed in his attempt. He retreated back into the stronghold, but now Mesha was desperate and he was cornered. And in the last few verses of chapter 3, we have a difficult passage to translate. And so there have been a handful of different opinions on how to explain what occurred. I think the one that makes the most sense is this one. While Mesha was unsuccessful in killing the Edomite king, he was able to capture his son. And so he took him hostage hoping to bargain for his own life. However, when that didn't work, I mean, why would Israel's kings care if Mesha murdered the Edomite king's son? Mesha did something absolutely barbarian. He took that young hostage to the top of the fortress walls and in clear view made a burnt offering of him to Chemosh, the god of Moab. The loss of the Edomite crown prince crushed the Edomite king and it demoralized his army. And to make matters worse, the armies of Israel and Judah didn't help them to protect the Edomite king's son or fight to get him back. The Edomites had only come in support of Israel and Judah. Now they're done. Grief-stricken and angry, they abandoned the battlefield for home. The Israelites depended on the Edomites for supplies, for logistical support. And with the Edomites gone, now they were left exposed and far away from the safety of Israelite soil. So they gathered themselves together, they disengaged, and they all went home. Now this horrible act of human sacrifice was well remembered in Israel's history. And in fact, it was denounced by the prophet Amos, Amos, 
in the book of Amos 2.1. There it says, here's what Adonai says, for Moab's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it because he burned the bones of the king of Edom, turning them into lime. And this further validates, I think, my position that the person killed on the walls of that fortress was the Edomite king's son, the crown prince. That's why the battle quickly fell apart. Let me end today with this thought. It was a terrible mistake on Israel's part to break off the fighting and go home without a victory. As a matter of fact, it was sin. It was no strategic victory for Mesha to merely kill one man even though he was the son of the Edomite king. The reality is that the kings of Israel and Judah refused to claim the victory of God's holy war. They refused. The reality is that when they saw that sacrifice of that young man to Chemosh, it unnerved them. Why? Because they completely believed that Chemosh was real. And when those heathen Edomites left for home, the Israelites attributed Moab's success to Moab's formidable God who had just received that human sacrifice. If only they would have believed God. If only they could get it straight in their minds. There is no Chemosh. There are no other gods. And that when God promises victory, all that's left for them and for us is to be obedient for that victory to go from prediction to accomplish fact. We'll begin chapter 4 next time.